everybody. Hey, hey. Welcome back to another episode of Quirks of Creation, your favorite weird science and ancient history podcast. My name is Jess Holmes, and as always, joining me today is Elise Malone, the proton to my electron, the quirk to my quirk. So glad to be here again. Yay, me too. I'm glad to be back today and doing this with you and no technical issues so far. Knock on wood. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> Shouldn't even say anything. <laughs> But we're here, we're doing it. Um, tonight's a little bit different because we've pre-recorded this episode. Mm -hmm. um, so if we're not responding to your chats. <laughs> <laughs> that would be why. That's the reason. We're not uh, here. We, we're not here. May, we Unless might be we in are. the chat. <laughs> Unless we are. Are we observed? So are we here? Are we? I think so. Are we I don't know. That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> But today I am super excited because we are um, going to be talking about, actually, before we jump into this, do you want to share a little announcement now? Should Ooh, we save it? We can. Guys, we finally have a locals community. I am so, so excited for this. Yay, me too. So if you want to join us, go over to locals.com slash quirks of creation and come hang out with us. You get the full audio podcast for free every single week, but we're going to start adding some behind the scenes content, some bonus content. So just for like $5 a month, cheaper than a cup of that Starbucks coffee, which you should not be drinking, by the way, you should be drinking North Arrow coffee. <laughs> you guys know better. We know you know better. You know. But. For that cheap, you can get our new segment called Quirks or Quacks. I am so excited for this. Me too. I'm excited to get started on this. And I like the behind the scenes kind of stuff because I've been saying to Jess when we record things, uh, we need a blooper reel. <laughs> we low-key do because it's like, oh, I said something wrong or, yeah. oh, I like bit my tongue or, you know, something ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or for me, it's like, oh, a kid just walked in in the middle yep. of all this. Whatever. It's, the dog started barking. Yep. Yep. Exactly. It's pretty fun. We're funny. We're funny people. We think we're funny. <laughs> we think we're funny. That's, that's much more accurate. <laughs> but Quirks or Quacks is going to be super fun because we're basically going to look at different TikToks, be it about science, ancient history, whatever, and say, okay, is this legit or are these people totally quacky? Like, what? I don't even know what they're going on about. Right. I'm excited to see what we find. And also, if you find anything that you want to send to us, you can send it to us on our TikTok, Quirks of Creation. You can DM us on Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Just send it on over yeah. and we'll try and get to your videos too. So excited for that. I'm excited too. But um, today, what we're going to be talking about is the... Um, Top 10 significant biblical archaeological finds throughout history. I love it. I am excited. Some of these I get really, really stoked about and keyed up. So, and I've had a lot of coffee today already. So, yes. She has the world's most giant mug. Guys, this is what you miss out on <laughs> when you listen. You miss Elise's giant mug. It is so big. I need it. It's I like need it. Actually, I probably don't, but. <laughs> It Look, probably doesn't help. <laughs> just need an IV drip of coffee. Yes, definitely. Up. Yes. So if you see me extra fidgety today, I'm going to blame the mug. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'll just blame the mug. All right. But jumping into it, um, we talk about this a lot in that we talk about our faith, 
But we also talk about how evidence, like when we find scientific evidence, archaeological evidence, whatever, it bolsters our faith. It's something unique that biblical archaeology, in my opinion, is, is that it consistently proves, if nothing else, that the Bible is accurate in many ways. Right. Um, I was listening to a podcast, I'm going to totally butcher what he said, but the gist of what he said was there's, there's no other faith really out there that has this to back it up, that has this, um, not only the science, but the, but the history, the archaeology to kind of back it all up. And that's what I find so interesting about all these finds is most, if not all of them, really corroborate the Bible and give us more, um, tangible evidence, but also just, uh, it's like, see, it says it here and that's not in the Bible. And you can kind of like make these connections. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So jumping into it, number 10 is, oh, and also I do, I do want to say this is like my top 10. (laughs) So it's, I kind of put together these numbers and the significance in my own opinion, take it all with a grain of salt. Just is what it is. I, I think it's a good opportunity to tell the audience, you know, if there's one on this list that we didn't get to, let us know down in the comments, let us know yes. in the chat, and maybe we could cover that on a future episode. Definitely. And there's definitely ones I did not talk about. Um, like I did not bring up the Shroud of Turin because we're definitely going to be covering that in depth. And it's, um, a little more controversial than the ones I have on here as far as whether it's authentic or not. I won't spoil anything there. But uh, most of these that I picked, solid evidence, they've been backed up and they're widely accepted for the most part. So yeah, there's a lot of things we could have talked about. <laughs> I narrowed it down, but I would love to see in the comments what anybody else wants to hear about if we don't talk about it today. Or if we did and you want to hear more, this is definitely a jumping off point for future episodes too. So love it. Yeah. All right. Number 10 is the Rosetta Stone. Ooh. Yeah. So I put it at number 10. Most lists have it up towards the top. It's not that this is not significant. Again, just my personal preference for today in this list. Right. Um, so a little history on the Rosetta Stone for those who might not be familiar. This was a fragmented Egyptian stone slabbed pro, slab, excuse me, proclaiming King Ptolemy V was supported by the priests of a temple in Memphis in Egypt. Mm. Uh, this in itself is not that important, but what is so important that is that it was inscribed three times in three separate languages. So we have the hieroglyphs, Demotic, and ancient Greek. I have a little um, 3D visual for you here which I love. Ooh, this is cool. Yeah, so moving it all around. But you can see, you know, just this big, heavy stone slab with all these inscriptions. I can't really zoom in. I'm sorry, guys. But you can kind of see the inscriptions on here. So the hieroglyphs that are on there, that was mostly for, uh, like, the priests, the higher caste in Egypt, not many people knew that even during the time that it was used. Mm. It was like the 1% understood the hieroglyphs. Um, and then the demotic was for the everyday person, like the 
in Egypt. So that's kind of what everybody used to communicate. <clears throat> and then, of course, ancient Greek. So, yeah. So that, and that was, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. I, I just thought that was such a cool image, especially for you audio listeners. Again, these Thank are you. reasons you should come over and see the actual video podcast because you get to miss out on the really cool images that we show. And that 3D image just makes it feel so much more real. I don't know. Yeah. Like, obviously, it's real. <laughs> but. <laughs> but it's 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 so much cooler than the 2D pictures right. that you can see everywhere. Um, And you I feel like you get the heftiness of it when you see yeah. it that way. Yes. You can really appreciate, like, how big this stone was. <laughs> it's, it looks like it's huge. It looks like it's heavy. It's, yes. it's not like a perfect square. <clears throat> it's kind of like... Yeah, it's cut I at an angle. I an isosceles triangle, but that's not <laughs> it. But you know, the square that's like kind of lean, a parallelogram. Yes. There you go. Geometry. Boom. <laughs> we don't discuss that here. No. <laughs> I'm bad at geography. <laughs> yeah. Me, uh, no, not my thing. But, but yeah, that's a great way to describe it. It's definitely chipped and broken, mm. not whole. Um, when it was found, so actually I'll get to that. So, it was found on accident, which is going to be a huge theme today. <laughs> Everything, all these cool things, it was like, whoops, oh, look at that. This is no exception. So it was found up by accident in 1799 by soldiers in Napoleon Bonaparte's army. He was campaigning in Egypt, and they were digging a foundation for an additional fort. And um, this was just kind of part of this weird wall they found when they were digging. I'm like, oh, this looks important. <laughs> that it was just part of a wall. Yeah, that's so random. It it was so random, and I feel like that happened often. Where these things that, I mean, it's a it's a big piece of stone, and right. If you don't, if it's not important anymore, so this was like a big announcement about this child king. And everybody's like, well, we already knew that old ancient history. <laughs> and they would just, you know, we can't let this go to waste. So right. it was used. And again, you kind of see that theme come up a lot too. These things being reused and found in weird, weird situations. So, right. so that's where they found it. But after Napoleon's defeat, the stone became the property of the British. And in 1814, an English physicist named Thomas Young first demonstrated that part of the hieroglyphics sounded out the name of Ptolemy. Mm. And between the years of 1822 and 1824, a French scholar whose name I'm going to totally butcher named Jean-Francois Champollion. Actually, then, that sounds totally legit. I don't think you butchered you. it at all. Thank you. If you just make it sound a little arrogant, I think you can... I mean, just aren't kidding. all French names like that, though? Right. Kind of, kind of. I took French in high school, and I did not stick <laughs> whatsoever. So, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but he used this important clue, along with his interpretations of the demotic text, to gradually discover, through a lot of trial and error, the exact way that hieroglyphs actually form the sounds of the Egyptian language, which was actually a direct translation from Greek. Um, so at that time, <clears throat> ancient Greek wasn't even that 
popular. Like scholars, mm. some scholars knew it. Right. But they definitely didn't know hieroglyphics. They didn't know the demotic. They didn't know any of that. So when he was able to do this, it was the key to deciphering the Egyptian hieroglyphs, which in turn, why this is so important, is it unlocked a wealth of textual and historical sources related to the Bible. So we kind of... That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So it is a big deal. It's just kind of... I want to talk about other big deals more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I, it brings it into context for me because when I heard of the Rosetta Stone, it was told to me like, this is the thing that is the translator between all languages. Mm-hmm. I don't know why somebody told me that. I feel it was, I feel like it was very vague when I first heard about it yeah. too. Like kind of the same thing. Like it wasn't hieroglyphs so much as it was just like, this unlocked everything. Yeah. And not not really. I mean, it was huge. It is right. huge. Um, there's like, so literally, much. it's physically huge. And it's physically huge. <laughs> and then it's, uh, yeah. It, so in archaeology and in history, this is a big deal. And for the biblical scholars, too, and archaeologists, it opened up a lot of right. other texts besides, like, the Hebrew and Aramaic and things like that. And, I mean, it's not like Egypt wasn't important to the Jews, to Christians. It, oh, yeah. You know, Egypt played a pretty big role in a lot of things. Nah. It's nah. not like they went into Egypt <laughs> and had to be led out of Egypt. <laughs> and, exactly. you know... Jesus didn't run away to Egypt. Right. Or his parents, I guess. But Yeah. Uh, seeing you know. shelter in Egypt. Right, right. Which iron irony. Right. But <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I'll I'm gonna leave that one there for now. And we're gonna go on to number nine. Number nine. Number nine is the ancient Galilee boat, or also known as the Jesus boat. Ooh. So I'm going to show you what they have found. This is the boat. It is cool. So, again, people who are listening, this is like the base, the bottom, and starting up the sides of the boat. Um, You know, it's really, it's over 2,000 years old. (laughs) It's old. It's worn out. But you can get the gist of what the boat would have looked like. And it kind of looks like a piece of driftwood. It does. Except really really big. Yeah. A huge piece of driftwood. Kind of in the shape of a boat. Um, This is also, there's a picture of, uh, maybe, if I can get it to center up here. But this is like what they think the boat would have looked like recreated. So somebody has a model that they recreated and what looks much nicer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It kind of looks like all of those boats you would see modeled in Sunday school, which is probably yes. how we get that image to use in yeah. like Christian lesson plans and things like that. Exactly. So it's not this crazy new design right. that we haven't seen before, but it does um, again, just give us a, more firm reference, I guess. Yeah. But I'll get into it. So this 
is an ancient fishing boat that was discovered at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee during a drought in 1986. Um, yeah, the boat itself dates back to the first century AD, the time of Jesus, and matches the type of boats built at that time. Um, the dimensions of this boat are 29 and a half feet long, eight feet wide, and four feet high. Wow. So on, um, and actually on the side of the boat, they found an inscription saying Jesus was here. It's really controversial, but could have been his boat. What? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I <couldn't help> myself. <laughs> you totally got me though. I was like, hey. excuse me. I know. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, that was too on. I should have seen it coming. It was too on the nose. Right, right. I couldn't help myself. I was, was like, good. yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. go for it. No, no one's but, making the claim that this was his boat. <laughs> Except you know, me, I guess. I, I, I could totally see, like, we talk about God being a little cheeky sometimes. Him just going around going, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus and all the disciples. Yep. Just had to sign it like, <laughs> like they were rock stars. I don't know. Right. No. no, I just couldn't help myself. But so it might not have been his boat, probably was not his boat. Right. Or a boat that he used. Again, nobody's making that claim. It's more significant because of the fact that it was found in the Sea of Galilee. Mm. It dates back to the time of Jesus and his disciples. And again, like due to its size. Very definitely a fishing boat, maybe a ferry boat, but Jesus used a ferry boat too. Get away from all the people. I get that some days. Don't blame him. I don't blame him either. <laughs> but, Especially after what they did to him. I know. I know. Uh, and he still loves us. He's. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> um, an article from helpmewithbiblestudy.com states that the boat easily, the boat could easily support a square sail admit amid ships and could be rowed with four or five oarsmen. Mm. The boat's design does allow for one to sleep in it, as well as support the transportation of Jesus and his disciples. The existence of the boat affirms a detail in the gospel narratives, adding more support to the historicity of Jesus. So again, while might not have been his boat, it's just this little piece of tangible evidence you can see preserved really well for the most part. <laughs> and I find it yeah. so interesting as to how it was preserved so well. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's clearly made of wood. Mm -hmm. So it's an organic material. And the fact that it didn't decompose totally decomposed like right. it, it obviously had decomposed some yeah but was basically fossilized in that shape is really interesting to me yeah absolutely and i know there's something to that which i didn't really look into but i know there's something to like wood and water mm -hmm. can be preserved you know for a really long time right so like if you think about crosses that were used for crucifixion, for example, right, and we really don't have any evidence of those, but they weren't preserved at all, really. Right, they weren't. So they did just decompose or were used for something else or whatever. But yeah, that's what's cool about this one is it was preserved really well that is in the so Sea cool. of Galilee. Yeah. Um, let's see here. So... 
You know what makes not our top 10 or our top five, but our number one choice for coffee? North Arrow Coffee. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Yay. This single origin and roast order coffee is not only delicious, but impactful. So 15% of all proceeds are donated to pro-life charities. And that, my friends, is something to raise your mug to. So treat yourself to some North Arrow coffee, help protect those precious babies, and save yourself 10% by using Quirks 10 on your next order. Yum. That was a solid transition, and I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Not to bring this up again, but I have a really funny one for our <laughs> Shroud of Turin episode someday. Oh my gosh. I'm so I hope you guys let me it. use it. Yes, for sure. And I'm sorry that we didn't get to do the Shroud of Turin episode <laughs> recently, like tech issues out the wazoo it was crazy but i appreciate you guys being there for our special little bonus episode where we just got to sit down and read the bible that was really fun so if you guys missed it go to rumble and check that out that's just a special episode yeah we made it we made the most of it that night (laughs) um the next little thing i have here number eight actually eight and seven kind of go together so okay Number eight is the Pool of Siloam. And yeah, I'm excited about this one. I think this is one, the Pool of Siloam and then the um, Hezekiah's Tunnel. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about more in another episode, possibly. But what I, I'm going to show you a little video clip because I think it just gives a really good, um, it just shows you better than I can really tell you what they found, what it looks like. So uh, I'm so excited. Yeah, this one's this one's pretty cool. Maybe if it'll play. Well, Zev, here we are, number three, and this one is particularly exciting. Where are we right now? In order to appreciate, can you hear it, or is it not? Is it where we are? We have to start off okay. with these mysterious metallic green doors that lead to nowhere. If you go back about a decade ago, 2004, there was a road. Those doors opened out, it was a driveway, and there was a road right above our heads. 2004, beneath the road there's a sewage pipe. The sewage pipe explodes. And now what you have is a big mess. So the Jerusalem municipality has to come and send in construction crews to repair this sewage pipe over here. And Jerusalem is not just any municipality. So when you send in construction crews, it's a very special place. And when you send in construction crews to repair a sewage pipe, you also have to send in an archaeologist because this is Jerusalem and you never know what is going to turn up. So they're fixing the sewage pipe. There's an archaeologist by the name of Eli Shukrun, who's here. One of the top archaeologists. One of the top archaeologists. Some of the biggest discoveries in Jerusalem in the city of David have been made by Eli Shukrun. He hears the bulldozers as they're repairing the sewage pipe. They're scraping up against something. It just doesn't sound right. He says, stop what you're doing. Clears everybody out. And they see that when they clear everyone out that they had uncovered these ancient steps 2,000 years old right over here Uh, from the second temple period the time of Jesus exactly and you have over here these steps and they say there's only one other place in all of Israel where you have steps like these four steps flat four steps flat those are the steps leading up to the southern ascent of the Temple Mount and they say there must be a connection between these two sets of stairs and the stairs that we're looking at right over here must be the steps leading down to the ancient pool of 
Siloam. What was the Pool of Siloam? Why is it so important? So the Bible tells us there are three times during the year, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, the three pilgrimage festivals, where all of Israel would have to go up to the temple on pilgrimage. Now, before you can go up to the temple, you have to purify yourself, immerse yourself in a ritual bath, a mikvah. The Pool of Siloam was the size of two Olympic-sized swimming pools. Big. Why so big? Well, Josephus the historian tells us that 2,000 years ago, up to one million pilgrims would go on pilgrimage on these festivals. This pool behind us here, most of it is yet to be excavated, but the pool was enormous to accommodate the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who would have to go in purity from here all the way up to the Temple Mount. Wow. All right. So. I also like his description of the ritual of, uh, you know. Right. Of purification. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. You know that, that whole thing. Whatever. That whole thing. I think this is one thing we miss out <clears throat> a lot on as Christians. Jesus was Jewish. And I feel like yeah. we don't know a lot of Jewish customs because yes. I don't know. We've just decided, oh, well, that we don't need to know that as a yeah. part of salvation. I feel like it just really minimizes our understanding of what went on back then. And I find it interesting. I don't know about I do, I do too. I think it's foundational. And yes. it's something, the older I get, the more I'm like, I don't know enough of Jewish tradition and law and what they did and why. Right. So the more we dig into this is really cool because the more I'm finding out about Jewish customs and um, the laws and, uh, I mean, I'm, certainly no expert and I would love to like just sit down with a rabbi someday and be like can you tell that me everything so cool. <laughs> but maybe some if you guys know a rabbi <laughs> yeah send him our way uh that'd be a fun one to do like to interview right that would be yeah. so cool that'd be pretty cool anyway random thought there but what you so I know for some of you who are listening what you see is these um well first they're starting out I don't know. Um, how far down would you say they go? 20, 30 feet? In yeah, the beginning? it's easily several staircases. Yeah. And it looks like they're in sort of like an ancient back alleyway. Yeah. Right? The, the yes. walls are really close together. The architecture is obviously very old and very ancient. The steps are very old and ancient. Yes. And long. So, yeah. I mean. Steps are very long. The steps are very long. Like he said, this would be the size of two Olympic pools. And so you have steps that go all the way around the perimeter of the pool. And um, you step down four steps and there's a like a landing pad and another four steps down and a little I wonder what the significance surface. of the four steps is because he yeah. said the same set of steps is up to the temple mount. Yeah. And, you know, there's that definitely. has to be symbolic Some. Yes. For some reason. I agree. So again, I think there's a lot more here that I'm gonna, than what I'm going to cover right now. Mm -hmm. But that's a good question. I like that. Um, what I also loved about what he said was like, so here in America, when you have a construction site, like you just have a right. construction site. You don't have to call in. I mean, sometimes if you find something, but usually, like when you find giant bones and stuff. Yes, exactly. And then they get taken away and nobody knows about it ever again. Yeah. But that's for conspiracies pill. I'll save it for them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're much more common than it is here. Right. To stumble upon 
something significant like that. And so, you know, you're doing a construction, you're trying to fix this pipe and you find something. It's like, oh, I got to call this guy, which in the video, if you missed it, <laughs> very dramatic photo of this. <laughs> He's like standing obviously in a cave with like sunbeams down on his face. I'm like, okay. I know. It's That's very, a very artsy photo. Very artsy. I was like, oh, he's an archaeologist and a model. Got it. Got okay. it. <laughs> uh, but the, so getting back to it, I just think that's a really cool thing to remember, like how different it is over there. Like, oh, I stumbled on something. Got to call in the archaeologist before we go much further. Kind of cool. But um, the pool of Siloam in the Bible is the place where Jesus healed the blind man. So Mm. John 9, 1 through 11 reads, As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. Um, So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't that the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. I love that. That gives me chills. No, I love that story, too. Uh, Yeah. And there's a lot more. Go ahead. It just makes me think a lot about, like, this question of, suffering in the world that yes. totally unexplainable uh, because Jesus said, you know, it's not a curse from the sin of his parents or anything like that. It is so there could be an opportunity for God to show his miracles. Yes. And that just gives me a little perspective, yeah. you know, when there's suffering going on in my life or in my friend's lives, there's an opportunity for God to work a miracle. We just have to open ourselves up to it. Yes. I love that. And I think that's why I love that story so much because it, I think we always want to find purpose in our suffering. We don't always do, yeah. but God works through all of these things, whether we see it or not, Right, there is opportunity. And like you said, being open to it, it's a beautiful thing, even when it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> yes. Even when it doesn't feel like it. And yeah, that doesn't mean that suffering doesn't suck and that it's not hard. Right. I mean, how long did that guy have to go? As a blind man, I mean, <sighs> he was already grown, right? He had lived yeah. his whole life like that and had known nothing else. So yeah. that doesn't mean there's not an agonizing waiting period or anything like that. Exactly. Just know that, I don't know, God, God's got it, man. God's got it. Exactly. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> um, so this pool that they discovered, this was found in 2004, And before this, there was a pool and a church built by the Byzantine Empress Eudocia to commemorate the miracle between 400 and 460 AD. This is where people would go. It was more symbolic, you know, like um, it was like, like I said, it was to commemorate the miracle. It wasn't like the pool. Um, So again, 
2004, these construction workers found it. And now we know where the Pool of Shalom is. And what's cool about this is it also leads into Hezekiah's tunnel because you have to ask, where did the water come from? Right. <clears throat> so in preparation for an Assyrian attack in 701 BC, King Hezekiah ordered this immense, immense engineering project. Um, and this story is found in 2 Chronicles 32, 2 through 4 and verse 30, and then 2 Kings 2020. Um, King Hezekiah ordered a tunnel to be dug under the city of David to bring water from the Gion Spring, which is outside the city walls, and inside the city to a pool where water could be collected and used in case of a siege. This tunnel was 1,750 feet in length and is absolutely baffling how they built it um, because they started at two different points right. you know, and like met in the middle kind of thing. Yeah. That's crazy with ancient yeah. technology. Like yeah. today you would have to have like these scanners to yeah. make sure that you actually met up in the correct point. I don't know how they did that. Like, I don't no clue. I don't either. And there's theories and things out there, but I was like, I couldn't, I don't think I could describe it like, right. <laughs> well enough. Anyway, they did it. It's amazing. I've got, a f this little picture is a, boy who's in the tunnel oh wow walking through and uh so the water still flows through and just to back up for a second so the water still flows through and because the water came from this spring it was acceptable um pure water for the um oh where did i have the word for the purification mikvah yeah oh, the mikvah yeah the mikvah the ritual bathing right. so Water still flows to this day. Pretty, pretty cool to see. I've got another photo here that I want to show of, and the one before, there's this kid standing in the tunnel. I mean, it's not very tall because it was yeah. just, you know, meant for water. People still had to go through and like make it, but it's, it's, I don't know. He's it, the ceiling is just above his head and the water's up to his waist. And that's a, a boy you said. So like a yeah. child. Yeah. Wow. So I think like teens. Yeah. Um, and then That's this crazy. photo over here is a rendering of like, or just a, it's a little hard to mm. see because it is pretty small. I'm going to see if I can make it a little bit bigger for us. But it's what it would have looked like at that time. So over here you have the Gion Spring. Mm -hmm. And this blue line, if you can see it, kind of winds its way around the outer wall or through this tunnel, this through the right. tunnel. And then over here is the Siloam okay. pool. So yeah, so they started here at the pool where the pool is now. And then over here at this outer wall, the meeting points right here in the middle. Okay. So this makes it even crazier because it's yeah. not like two straight lines and they meet no. in the middle. No, it's like. It's like a sine wave, wave yeah, yeah, type of thing going on. That's and then they meet it. in the middle. Yes. Nah, man. <laughs> I know. I know. It's crazy. Um, let's see. So also the tunnel has been dated using various methods, included radio, including radiocarbon dating. Mm -hmm. But this tunnel and the pool were dated mostly by 
text pottery that was found around there, other like coins, things that they had found also in the area that could really help solidify the dates of these. Um, So let's see here. Kind of lost my train of thought. But anyway, he ordered this tunnel to be dug under the city of David to bring water from the springs. And different pools were built all over the set built over the centuries. So it wasn't just like strictly the pool of Siloam. That was the newest like second temple era pool. Um, But again, up to today, the water's still flowing and some cool facts about this tunnel. So the date of construction, roughly 710 BC, like I said, 1,750 feet. The height, the height difference, this one got me between the starting point and the fin, you know, Starting point, finish point when they met in the middle. Height difference was 30 centimeters, so like a foot. I think that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I think that's pretty darn good. So this just confirms to me, and this keeps coming up, that there was some sort of ancient technology that we've lost. Absolutely. Right? Some sort of ancient understanding of how to do things yes. that we just can't find and we don't have anymore because that's something we could do now. Probably it would be challenging, but we could do it. And then the fact that they were able to do such an amazing thing with the, the air quotes, right. Right. No technology. Yeah. Right. Whatever they had. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But (laughs) I find that, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And they estimate that it took, Anywhere from nine months to four years to do this. Mm. And it's just amazing. I I love it. Again, it, it relates back to the Bible. It relates back to this story. So Hezekiah was worried about the Assyrians coming in. And it's like, you know what? <laughs> we'll at least have water. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> he built all of this, which I think is super awesome. That is super awesome. Uh, Before we go any further in our list, we are going to move over to Rumble and Odyssey. So we always say, don't work for woke companies that hate you and your values. And so we won't. Uh, That's why we're taking our show over to Rumble and Odyssey, where we can speak more freely. Audio listeners, you'll still get the majority of this episode. Actually, you'll get all of this episode because there won't be any chat today. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But our goal at Hawkhound is to make sure that we aren't making little compromises to grow our podcast. So. Join us over on Rumble and Odyssey where we can speak more freely, and we'll see you there. Okay, here we go. I know that dance party was shorter today. (laughs) Just kidding. Where are we? So we're at number six. This one, I don't know. I feel like I'm just getting more and more excited as we go down the list. So I'm excited. You have to forgive my geekiness as we continue. That's what people come here for, to watch us geek out. I just get geeked. This one is evidence of crucifixion. So I kind of mentioned this earlier, but not really. Did you know there's really like, no archaeological evidence of people being crucified. I know there's no crosses. I think people have found some nails, but they can't necessarily confirm that it's right. They were the used for, for 
for crucifixion. Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to talk about that here in this too. So I'm glad you said that. Um, you know, with crucifixion, like we know it happened. We know how it happened. We know the Romans used it as a way to make death prolonged and agonizing, very public and very shameful. Um, but again, no real evidence found, no crosses found, no perforated skeletons, nothing except for this, which is, and trigger warning, I guess, maybe. It's a crucif. It's a heel bone that's oh. been a bit mummified. It's a fossilized bone. It's so. a fossilized bone. I don't think it's that gross. You can't even tell it's a foot. No, you can't. You can't. So what you see is the bone, and you see this very um. Oh, I want to say grotesque, but it's not. It's just like you see the nail, and it's right, and it's see? through the heel. Yeah, and it's through the heel, and it's got a little hook on the end, and um, which makes sense because if you've ever watched the Passion of the Christ, you yes. know how they nail it in, and then have to hit the back end to make sure it sticks and isn't pulled out. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So this was found in a first a first century tomb. Excuse me. Right. This is the heel bone of Yehohanan. And it was found in 1968. You can see, like I said, the nail. Yehohanan was a criminal, or at least he was in the eyes of the Romans. Right. Who was crucified and buried. Um, quick little story before I get to the significance. We'll talk more about Jewish burial traditions, especially when we do the Shroud of Turin. Keep bringing that up, but it it's relevant. It is. Um, and I'll talk more about the Jewish burial traditions in a second too, but the Jewish people were very superstitious when it came to death and burial. Once the body was confirmed dead, they would get to burial right away. And mm -hmm. I've heard said that the law was, they had eight hours at the most to mm -hmm. get this body cleaned up and taken into the tomb. Um, others I've heard said a body needed to be buried before nightfall or they would be cursed. Again, I think a part of that is just the, the hygiene, right? Yes. It, you'd, yes. They didn't have germ theory back then. Yes. And this was part of Jewish law that they couldn't eat certain foods. Yep. It's not that they were necessarily spiritually unclean. Yes. It's just that God was trying to protect them from disease. And there wasn't a way to say, hey, there's like tiny bacteria on here that could kill you. Yeah, you don't right. cook this right. Not going to be yeah. good for you or cut or even butcher it correctly. Right. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I think it's more of that with this too. Um, you didn't really have a way to preserve the body. So it was like. Well, they had mummification, but they didn't have like what we yeah. have now yes. when you do an autopsy, things like that. I know the name of the chemical. I can't think of it right now for some reason. Starts with an F, right? Formaldehyde. Formaldehyde. Haha. -ha. I'm like, I can <laughs> smell it. <laughs> yep. Same. <laughs> I might not be able to say the name, but I can smell it. Oh, my goodness. Ugh. Yeah, it's terrible. Yes. And yeah, and that is something I have in my notes about the Shroud of Turin is that mummification definitely was used at this time, just not in this area. Right. So. Um, and not by Jewish people, typically. No, exactly. Because the, the blood and the body, it was all very um, sacred. Right. And so. 
they did things, yeah, a little a little bit differently for different reasons. But I think you're right about the time frame. Very much more, mm-hmm. and again, maybe they were superstitious, but I mean, it could. Be. I think I think you're more accurate with what you're saying. I mean, they could have been superstitious, but the reason it was put into the law was yes to protect them from disease. Yep, absolutely. Um, the so this heel bone that they found was found in a bone box and put a pinhole in that. Cause I'm going to talk about bone boxes <laughs> in a minute. Okay. Um, well, what makes this find so extraordinary is not just the fact that this was found and is proof of, uh, is, <laughs> dude, you guys, words are still hard. <laughs> words will always be hard. <laughs> words were all for them. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love What's it. great is we're recording and she could edit it out, but don't because it's just, Mm-mm. that's too much work for you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's more fun for the audience to see us yeah. trip up and things like that. Yeah. Goodness. Ah. It's coffee and water that I'm drinking. I don't even have, I don't even have an excuse. Anyway. <laughs> Over-caffeinated. Yes. That's, Said nobody ever. Yeah. Is that real? Nah. I think it is, but I'm going to ignore it. <laughs> Uh, so again, this is found in a bone box, which we'll get back to. What makes this find extraordinary is not just the proof of crucifixion, which isn't really in question, just not a lot of evidence of it. Um, but it shows that this man was buried after he was crucified. Mm. Um, and not just him, but criminals that were crucified were still buried properly, may, may most likely not honorably, but properly. Right. Because one of the claims made against Jesus and his resurrection is that he was never actually buried because he was crucified. And this shows that that would go against the grain. Right. So just because Jesus was crucified does not mean he wasn't buried. Joseph of Arimathea was doing his due diligence. I mean, love, lovingly also. I don't want to take away from that by any means. But it was not... um, it was not not done, right? Is my point, and this shows that. Yeah. Um, that was a pretty good investment on Joseph of Arimathea's oh. part because he got his tomb back. <laughs> he did. Uh, he got his money's worth. <laughs> um, a reason that they said this heel bone still has this like four inch spike through it is most likely because they were trying to bury him quickly. And couldn't get the spike out of his heel. And then definitely afterwards, when the body had decomposed, the spike had calcified in the bone. And there's no way of getting it out after that. So just was what it was. Um, This isn't the only crucified heel with a spike in it. There was another found in Great Britain around. Found in Britain? Yeah. Yes. Great Britain. That's wild. I know. So this was found around third or fourth century AD. But I mean, it looks even less like a foot. I know it does. It, yeah. The, and they know it is because they found like the whole skeleton oh, okay. buried. Um, he was a slave, buried in a slaver's, like, mm. you know, grave or whatever. Um, but what this shows too is that Rome was everywhere. <laughs> right. Rome was an empire, if you hadn't heard. Right. If you guys didn't know, they were everywhere. And so even up to Great Britain, where they did have some slaves and they 
where they had conquered up there, they were crucifying people up there too. Um, they were also weren't the first, I don't know how many people know this, maybe more people than I think, but the Romans weren't the first to use crucifixion. It was more like it started, I think in Persia, mm. but the Romans definitely perfected, perfected it. it. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> Ugh. Um, so like I had kind of said earlier, one of the reasons it's thought to have been rare to find evidence is if nails weren't used in the wrists, which they weren't as often as we would think, it was more um, rope was used to tie the hands. Mm -hmm. And the crosses, like we said, the wood would degrade. They'd also reuse it. They'd reuse the, the rope. And I mean, rope is like, right. you can't really point to it and be like, that was used for crucifixion. Well, and I just think of all the homes and things that were built. It's like, you got it. Yeah. That was some intense wood. That was a lot of wood yeah. that they used for crucifixion. Yeah. I could very easily see that have been repurposed into homes and things Definitely. like that. Definitely. And one thing that I found with the nails, which I found interesting, um, the nails, it said, were thought to have magical properties. And people would have collected them as amulets or trinkets. Mm. Again, not entirely sure how accurate. But I also think of the Romans and um, the Colosseum. Yeah. And I mean, people would collect sweat, blood, yeah. anything from the gladiators. And everything was like, you know, drink their sweat. It'll make you stronger. It'll make whatever. It, well, yeah. And, yeah. It's like really demonic, the yeah. collection of things surrounding death. I mean, yes, they definitely. were all worshiping pagan gods at the time. So you could see them pursuing this pagan sort of magic. Yep. Yes, exactly. So definitely not unheard of, not a huge surprise. Um, but one of the reasons, right. Again, that they think, Finding these nails was more difficult. Um, and that one leads us to number five. If I was better at this, I would have had like, whoosh, number five. <laughs> Next time. Next time. <laughs> Next time. Uh, number five are ossuaries. So What? Yeah. Bone boxes. <laughs> oh, okay. So they're, yeah. Ossuaries or bone boxes. So going back to like Yeshuaana and how we knew his name and things like that, a bone box was used for second burial. So mm -hmm. what they would do at this time was the body of the deceased would be put in a tomb or cave or whatever. And it was left for about a year to decompose. And then the family members would go back Um and collect the bones and put them in a bone box. And that's where the remains would be kept after mm. that. Okay. So then you could keep using the tomb. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And you have these little bone boxes. Uh, there's the story of one of the disciples that Jesus called to follow him. Blanking on the name right now. Good job, me. <clears throat> but he was saying that his, I think his father had just died. And he said, you know, Lord, let me grieve my parent and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus is like, let the dead bury their dead mm. and follow me. And that comes back to this. So especially with parents, so 
when a family member or good friend would die, mostly when a family member would die, you would right. be given seven days of mourning. Right. If it was your parent, you were given a year. And mm-hmm. so that's that's like with this story with Jesus and that disciple, instead of like, he's like, no, you don't get a year to mourn. You're going to follow me right now. <laughs> so that that hits really different when you think of it that way. It's yeah. like there's a season for everything and yeah. having a moment to grieve is important, but you yeah. can't sit there and dwell on it forever because God has work for you to do. Yeah. Exactly. And that's me talking to me, you know, so <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. We both grieved yeah. mourned our losses and it's like, yeah. And, and I don't think Jesus was being callous. It was like you said, like there's a time to grieve and you can grieve, right. but you've got work to do. So let's go. Right. Um, but I didn't realize that it was a whole year when a parent died in the Jewish culture. Yeah. So, um, and I don't know what that whole year entailed necessarily. I know for the seven days it was, you stayed at home right? and pretty much the only place you could go was to the burial site. Right. I don't know if it was like that for a year with the parent, but that would seem a little excessive because then you couldn't care for you and the rest of your family. Yes. Um, So I don't know if it was just, you were more solemn for a year. I'm not sure. I would have to look at this is one of those things. I wish I knew more about Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. Ditto. So, yeah. So I will look into that more, especially before our next, um, before the shroud of Turin episode, because it comes up again. Anyway, (laughs) Anywho, so the reason for these, that the reason these are on here, um, there were two significant bone boxes that had been found related to Jesus's time. Mm-hmm. The first one is James, his brother, and you can see it here. So it's just a very simple limestone box. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you really can't see in this picture is the engraving that's on there. It's, uh, let's see, it's right in here again. Oh, yeah, it's very faint. Very faint. Very hard to see. But what it says when it was translated is um, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. This and one is beneath that Jesus was here. Yeah. <laughs> Just for just for his bro. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna have to use that more often. <laughs> uh and of course this one is more controversial. And I there right. possibly an episode here about this too, but a lot of Christian scholars favor the authenticity of this ossuary. It's a huge connection to Jesus, obviously, and physical evidence from the time of Jesus. And there's more here about collecting DNA from this ossuary and creating a DNA profile and all of that, because I think this was broken Mm. and they could get inside and get DNA samples from this. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip this for now. I would love a whole episode. On that, because I'm yes. so fascinated at the prospect of DNA, because yes. it's so hard to get it unless it's perfectly preserved, because DNA decomposes like everything else. Exactly. 
Exactly. So I think the argument was um, this was well-preserved in that, in that box and mm. the bones decomposing, they could still scrape the DNA mm. from the box. Again, I didn't go into it a whole yeah. lot simply because I do, I do think this is an yeah. episode for us later. Um, the second ossuary that was found was Caiaphas. So the priest who um, was there when Jesus was being tried and before right. he was um, sent to crucifixion, um, you know, before he was condemned to death by Pilate. Again, this is just another one that's more evidence from Jesus's time. And not that one, but this one. This is his bone box, his ossuary. Wow. Yeah. It's very ornate. Very different. <laughs> so you had so people listening. So you had the box for James. It was just it was very simple. Very hard to even see the inscription on it. <laughs> uh, P.S. <laughs> We're recording during the day, which means my kids are outside this room. <laughs> I love it. Weird noises. <laughs> I apologize. That's usually why we do this Friday night when they're in bed. So we're just authentic for you guys, you know. Yeah, this is for real. <laughs> it's just real. And again, I guess if Jess, if you want to edit it out later, nah, there's a lot of work for you to do. Sorry, uh, but hey, they're having fun. I don't know. That's right. That's what's yeah. important. If they start knocking on the door, then we'll we'll go from there. Anywho, <laughs> back to Caiaphas and his bone box. Yes, very different. So again, James, very square, very plain. This one has a rounded top. There's um, like, let's see, it's more, there's etching on the top. That's what I was trying to say. They even etch the top of the box. The front has this beautifully carved, like there's rosettes and leaves. And it's hard to see in the picture here, but there's still red paint visible in some places. Is that what that is? It's not yeah. just like dirt. Or something. No, so it's like right in here. Yeah. That is like the paint that's oh, been left behind. So it's very cool. Yeah. It doesn't look red anymore. It right. Just like a darker yellow on this. But obviously it was painted and just and beautiful showing his It's honestly still kind of beautiful. Yeah, I think so too. And this one is kept at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And we talked about that in our Josephus episode where mm -hmm. you can have, you see the model of the second temple period and definitely on a bucket list for me someday. One day. This is yeah. why we need y'all's rumble rants. So yeah. you can send us to Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> then we'll send Quebec really cool. Uh, really cool stuff. Really cool stuff. <laughs> um. And again, this is more evidence directly from the time of Jesus, which I think is really cool and just lends to more, like I said, tangible evidence, authenticity, things like that. Um, and just, I like, it's a cool little uh, nod to the culture too that we don't really talk about. So uh, number four, this one getting into like more heavy big deal kind of stuff in my opinion. So number four, 
is the Teldan Steel or the House of David inscription. Mm. Yeah. So with this one, in 1993, in Teldan, a city in northern Israel, it was being excavated and one of the women working there, her name was Gila Cook. She was standing in a plaza that was previously unearthed just a few days before this discovery. So until Dan, there was this whole, um, actually, I don't think I have a picture of it, but I'll try and get a picture of it because it is really cool. It's this whole city. And in the Bible, it was just Dan. Right. And it's like the northernmost point of Israel. Mm. And up there, they had this huge excavation site, ginormous. We're going to see if I can pull up something real quick. But basically, she's standing in one of the plazas, and she is kind of not really paying attention. Right. And the sunlight catches her eye, and she was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, she thought that on one of the like basalt stones, she saw writing. So she called for the dig director, who was Abraham Bayran, to take a look. And he, apparently he exclaimed, oh my God, we have an inscription. And so this is like huge in archaeology to find an inscription, of course. And it wasn't the first one that they found, but it was definitely the most important one found at that site mm. most important in a lot of ways so what this in um looks like i can't find a really good picture of the excavation site itself but it was big it was a big stronghold a big fortress okay so next up at number four we have the teldan steel or stele mm. or the house of david inscription so in 1993 in teldan a city in northern israel um, this was being excavated, and one of the women excavating it, her name was Gila Cook. She was standing in a plaza that was previously unearthed just a few days before this discovery. I want to show you really quickly how big this excavation site was. Mm. And just kind of give you a scope. There's not a great picture of this. Mm. but I don't know. That looks pretty big from an aerial view. Yeah. Yeah. They were excavating all of this, and... These little red circles, specific areas that they were looking into. So it's huge. And again, this is another one where it's like an accident that this was found. Of course. Which I love. Um, and this one, oh, I love this one. I think this is probably one of my favorites, even though it's number four. I don't know. I love this one. So Gila Cook, she's standing in this plaza. They just unearthed it all. And the sun reflected off the basalt stone wall. And she thought she saw writing. And she called for the dig director, Abraham Byron, And he came to take a look. And apparently he exclaimed, oh, my God, we have an inscription. Woohoo! So that's a big deal, obviously, in archaeology. But this wasn't the first inscription they'd found at this dig. But it was definitely the most important one found at this site. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, it was huge. So, again, just to show you what it looked like. So, these, it's just a fragment of mm -hmm. 
um, and in a piece of, so the steel, it would, be, it would have been like a victory monument. Okay. And this is just a piece of that, which again, kind of like the Rosetta Stone, it was used to build this wall where they were excavating. Yeah. And I have one here in more color that will. Yeah. For you audio listeners, it's like this triangular shaped piece of broken stone yeah. that just has writing etched all over it. I don't know what that language is. Is it Hebrew? I think it's Aramaic. Aramaic. Okay. Maybe not. Of course, I didn't write it down. That's all good. I'll find it. But it's, it's either. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's ancient. I couldn't have read it anyway. <laughs> Me either. Right. Yeah. But anyway, so this is what she had found. That's what like the sun reflecting. That's what she saw and they found it. But why is this such a big deal? Um, so this was dated back to 9th century BC. It was Aramaic. I did put mm. it in my notes. I'm so proud oh, of you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, obviously, you know, broken and it doesn't contain the full text but what we can gather from the 13 lines that are visible is that an unnamed king is boasting of killing, quote, the king of Israel and also someone who is of the house of David. Mm. This gives me goosebumps. And I think it's amazing. But it's still like, okay, you're weird. Why are you freaking out about this one? <laughs> This is the first non-biblical reference to the house of David ever found. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So King David, I want to, I might not be a very fair comparison, but it was kind of right. like King Arthur. Like, right. did he exist? Didn't he? Of course, we believe he existed. That's right. kind of the crux <laughs> of everything. <laughs> right. It's kind of a big deal. But there um, uh, the fact that somebody else would refer to the house of David is so big. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. And it, the, so there were these like biblical minimalists in the 1970s mm -hmm. and uh, or it was really popular in the 70s. And they argued that the Bible could not be used as his, historical text and one of the main arguments was that biblical biblical characters not mentioned in extra biblical texts are not actually historical people. So David and Solomon, for example, they're such a big deal in the Bible, obviously, right. but there's no mention of them anywhere else until now. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so crazy. It's so huge. And you wouldn't think of it. I mean you just look at this like broken rock and you're like right cool whatever but it's and it also makes you wonder too what's been passed over and thought of as not important right. and maybe disregarded or discarded I mean most of the time or I'm, what's just been worn away by time because we keep seeing these things pop up in buildings and structures yeah used as foundational pieces right. Rather than preserved. And it shows you that people are really good at recycling. So mm -hmm. once you they think they're done with it, they're going to yeah. reuse it for something else. It's a hefty stone. It'll make a great foundation. Right. <laughs> yes. So um, 
once this, you know, once this came out and then after everyone had a chance to like fight over the authenticity and debate the translation and yada, yada, yada. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a good thing. Cause you don't want to just like find it and be like, yep, it's cool. And right. I don't know. So it's def it's been proven that the, um, the time frame is correct again, based on pottery and everything else that was found around this. And um, the translation has been accepted as well. <clears throat> and we'll talk about more about that in another one I have, but uh, the, his, so sorry. So this kind of like stopped everybody in their tracks with the biblical minimalism movement because it was like, well, okay, but your argument just went out the door because we have this, it references the house of David. And now this is generally like David, the house of David is generally accepted as a historical entity. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, his influence is still debated. Like, was he a great king or just this like tribal chief whose name got mentioned somewhere else? I don't, you know, that's going right. to, that's going to be what it is. We could do. Yeah, exactly. You can kind of, a lot of jumping off like things here. One thing I want to point out that amazes me further about this is that the king who was the victor in this story. So um, the, the 13 lines is saying how this unnamed king came in and, and killed the king of Israel and wiped out, you know, the house of David, not wiped out the house of David, but right. defeated them and, and conquered. But his name is not preserved on this. That's crazy to me. Yeah. It is very legible, very clear, like King of Israel, House of David. It has stood the test of time. It's very much there. While this king, his name is like, you can't find it. It's been chipped <laughs> away. And I was like, oh, there's some deeper meaning there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the House of David, God and his word, it stands the test of time. Yeah. Even in this non-biblical piece stone artwork if you will not really artwork but you know what i'm saying he didn't he didn't it. make it but king david did the house of david did anyway mm -hmm. i think that's one of the reasons why i put this one up there i thought it was pretty i i just really cool. like that because it's like i mean god's a, the author of creation right yeah. so in my mind he's preserved all of these little pieces for us to go and find but he's not going to preserve the name of the enemy, of course. Right, right. It's right. gone. You can infer who it was sure. based on the timeline and biblical texts and things like that. But it's like, but it's not there. Right. But the house of David is there. The king of Israel is there. Right. I love it. Pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Uh, the next one we're going to talk about, number three, mm -hmm. is the Ketef Hinnom Scrolls. Mm -hmm. This is another funny, like, how did it get found kind of story, which I feel like all of these have been, I don't know. It's just, I love it though. I do too. Cause it's weird to me how they haven't been discovered beforehand. And yeah. so it takes these little accidents yeah. for it to be revealed. And again, to me, it just feels like God using his timeline, right? He's going to reveal to us what he wants us to see. In his Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And you'll see it in this story too. So in 1979, two silver scrolls were uncovered in the Kitefinam tombs. It was an archaeological site southwest of the old city of Jerusalem. And the story, again, it cracks me up. So there was this archaeologist. He was Gabriel Barquet, and he had a very limited budget uh, with this dig. So he had all these 12 and 13-year-old boys to help <laughs> him. They're like volunteering right, for this project. And he discovered some tombs, but they were empty. They were looted a long time ago. And, um, you know, he's kind of defeated and he just decided to send one of the kids to clean up one of the tombs so they could take some pictures of it. Uh, this is how, this is his words, Barquet's words and how he puts it. So, quote, among the 13 year old diggers, there was one annoying kid named Nathan who was always tugging at my shirt. I thought, that, <laughs> I know, I love this story. Um, I thought this was an ideal place to put him. He would be out of my sight. I told Nathan the repository had to be as clean as his mother's kitchen, even if he had to lick it. Oh, no. <laughs> Poor kiddo. So it had to be clean for the photography. Not too long afterwards, I felt him tugging at my shirt again. Nathan had in his hands almost complete pottery vessels. Wow. Yeah. So this time, I pulled at his shirt, took him back to the area, and asked where he found them. Bored, which this sounds like a typical bored 13-year-old boy yeah. to me. He's like, why am I here? Why am yeah. I doing this? Here's some Eat clay pots. <laughs> <laughs> so bored, Nathan had banged on the floor with a hammer. Uh, under the rocks, he found pottery. Wow. Little Nathan was sent home with his peers. Then I recruited archaeology, archaeology students from Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and from the Institute for Holy Land Studies at Mount Zion. Wow. We worked 24 hours around the clock. So I'm sure he got more funding. <laughs> yeah, after that. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't get any funding. <laughs> I know. That poor kiddo. <laughs> he just got kicked to the curb. Like, oh, you're so Aww. annoying. Thanks, kid. <laughs> so, hard. yeah, I know. So this little kid bored, he broke a false ceiling and discovered this secret chamber. That's crazy, though. It's so so crazy. It gets crazier because, I mean, they found over a thousand objects, arrowheads and pottery and all these things. Uh, But the biggest find was actually super tiny. And they were two little silver scrolls about an inch long. And yeah, I think they, or at least in like I was watching a video on it, too, because I wanted to see more. They were sifting Mm. everything that they had found in there that was small, whatever. Right. And these, they found these two silver scrolls in there. Mm. And the archaeologist was like, they look like cigarette butts. <laughs> but I grabbed them anyway. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, really. Thank goodness. <laughs> because these scrolls are 99% pure silver. Whoa. Yeah. Which we're going to talk about silver and lead here. But this one, silver pure silver almost and they tiny delicate so they were dated to late 7th early 6th century ce based on the script and the artifacts found with them but it took them three years just to unroll the larger of the two scrolls because they had to be so careful with this 
um, with these finds. So here's the two scrolls unraveled or, you know, oh, wow. They're still not very tiny I, or still not very big. The right. longest one I think is um, three inches long when it's unraveled. And it's like, so you can't one. see anything on it really. I don't know. No. no. And there's a better picture of, so this is, mm. I think the longer one and how they kind of got the script off of it. Lots of very careful x-rays. <laughs> I guess so. Scanning. Yeah, because, I mean, you didn't want to touch these things as any more than right. you had to. Um, it took, like I said, three years to just unroll it, and then in total 10 years to unroll and decipher both of the scrolls. And, wow. yeah, which is, that's a lot of patience. And you yeah. don't... You don't know if this is going to pan out into anything. Right. You know, it's like, I think they probably had an inkling, but still, like, I don't know. The, again, patients. one of those things that you could just discard and discount and, like, yeah. not pay yeah. attention to because it's so small and it feels so insignificant. Yes. Yeah. I mean, again, three years just to unroll it. <laughs> that is some supreme dedication. <sighs> no kidding. There better be something here. <laughs> Right, <laughs> would probably be in my mind. But what they found were um, uh, like verses that paralleled, that, there weren't verses, but inscriptions that paralleled Bible verses. So there was Deuteronomy 7, 9, who keep his covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments was one of the inscriptions on the big one. And the second one was the Lord Yahweh, Bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine to thee. Numbers 6, 24 through 25. Wow. And the second amulet had the Lord bless thee and keep thee. Again, the numbers verse. So the parallel wording is even more obvious when directly comparing the Hebrew lettering on the amulets to mm. the Hebrew scripture. The exact letter accuracy preserved and continued in the Hebrew Bible for over two and a half millenniums to this day is truly remarkable. That is amazing. It's incredible. And again, it just shows, which I feel like this is a theme that comes up often with us too, is it shows how consistent yeah. the Bible is. So it's not just the Bible that we have now, but these texts, these things that we keep finding are consistent. The, the Jewish scribes, anybody who copied these or wrote these down, it was all kept so, and even um, when they were uh, not writing it down, but verbally. Oh yeah. The verbal transference. Yeah. Yes. Was that was even accurate, kept accurate. It was very important. And this just corroborates that it gives more um, power to the fact that, this has remained true for so long. <laughs> right. I mean, there's the reason the Bible is the most well-referenced text in all of history, better than the Iliad, better than the Odyssey. We Gilgamesh, have more, all of those. All of them. Yeah. I mean, we have more evidence for biblical accuracy than any other ancient historical text. Absolutely. And 
the more arguments that keep coming, I mean, we can't always fend them all off, but there's so much to point to. Yeah. There's so much to be like, oh, but what about this? Eh, What about that? Eh, Did you know about this? (laughs) And this is just another one of those. Right. So more to point out with this is that this could possibly be the earliest known quotation of scripture. Ooh. Yeah, which I didn't think about that when I was reading it or, you know, when I first had heard about this and stuff. But a quotation of scripture, and it just, like I said, adds weight not only to consistency, but traditional early dating of the biblical text. Right. And um, it just shows how important it was to accurately keep these these things. So that why that's that's my take on that one, and that's why I think that's so cool. And again, I, I love, love the story of how this little boy is like, kind of, kind of like, screw you, I don't want to do this. <laughs> well, and this isn't the first time a child has found something <laughs> uh, ancient and very important. Yeah, exactly. I love that God keeps using children in these stories too. Okay. We're gonna get to, okay. I think, the one you're referencing. Yeah, obviously, that's pretty obvious, but. but we're getting there i swear so number two this one again i keep getting more and more geeked have you heard of the curse tablet the curse tablet yeah i don't think so me neither i came across this very recently well it is very recent right um we're definitely doing a full episode on this so i won't spend like i know i'm excited i won't spend a ton of time because i don't want to get deep, deep into it until later. But this one, again, is one of those where it's like, it's really big and really tiny. (laughs) So uh, just for you to see, so these tablets are lead tablets that were um, compressed together. Ooh. And I'm going to show you a quick picture before I get into really describing all that they found. So these are the size, This it's the size of a postage stamp, postage stamp. It's so Maybe tiny. A, so tiny. Maybe a little bit bigger. Um, just another reference here. This is a picture of a guy holding it in his hand and it's. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like just, just for our audio listeners, yeah. it really is the size of a postage stamp. Like yeah. it's smaller than his fingers like it it fits very squarely on the edge of his hand yeah it's so tiny and it was actually passed by so okay i'm gonna start at the beginning i just wanted y'all to see the size of this and keep that in mind because so small but also so huge um the story is found in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and Joshua chapter 8. And that's where you read what happened when Joshua entered the promised land. Short version, he placed half the tribes on Mount Gerizim. And there they declared blessings if the nation kept the covenant with God. And half of the tribes were sent to Mount Ebal and clear, declared curses if the covenant was broken by the nation of Israel. These tablets, or this tablet, was found um, inscribed with ancient letters in an early form of Hebrew that call on God to curse an individual who breaks their word. 
Whoa. So the folded lead sheets say, <laughs> cursed, 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 cursed by the <laughs> God Yahweh. You will die cursed. <laughs> oh, okay. Does it actually say that? Yes. I okay. actually does this time. <laughs> this is not me. <laughs> Although it also feels like way too on the nose. I know. I know. Actually, I made a joke about that. Like, this is not poetry by any by this any is means. Like some dude literally cursing a guy out. Yeah. I I I picture like Joshua being like, you go over there and write curses, and it's like curse, curse, curse you, curse, don't right. curse you. I don't know. Like they didn't know what to say except curses it's like when you're so mad that you don't know what to say and like yes. words just stop coming out yes yeah exactly yeah and there's and it continues so it's i mean not a lot but it cursed you will surely die cursed by yahweh cursed 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 <laughs> so again so it's a curse not tablet. a bit poetry <laughs> yeah and i guess we had to fit it on this very small tablet and, and get you your point across. And you all that space saying cursed a lot? I know, I know. It's, it's really funny. But it definitely gets the message across. Like, yes. <laughs> there's no subtlety. <laughs> I can appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Very, very straightforward. Um, there are a few reasons why this is so significant. And an article from LiveScience.com states, quote, while the dating hasn't been verified and the find hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal yet, its discoverers think the tablet is at least 3,200 years old. Wow. That would make the inscription the earliest known Hebrew text by several hundred years and the first to contain the Hebrew name of God, unquote. So, update, there is a peer-reviewed journal now. And it does confirm the dating and it confirms all their um, original thoughts that this was 3,200 years old and it was found at the base of Mount Ebal where Joshua had his altar. It was really, really cool. That's crazy. But what it said, so it has a reference to Yahweh, mm. which is not found. It's, it's usually what's found is El. Right. For the name of God. And that goes back to the Sumerian legend, right? Yes. Yes, definitely. So that all connects too. <laughs> but this shows that, you know, again, Yahweh used outside of the Bible. Mm. And the dating, not only, I don't know that they did carbon dating on this, but it was, again, the pottery. There's no way. The it's dig too site. Small. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I didn't find that in the peer-reviewed journal at all. So, again, the time frame based on the pottery and based on the inscription itself. Mm. Another big part to this is the fact that it's more proof that the Hebrews knew how to write at this time. Uh, I get so jazzed up about this. I love that. Uh, I get so jazzed because... There are so many people who are trying to argue, one, that Moses wasn't real. Two, there's no way he was literate and could have written the Pentateuch. Right. And it's it. this shows, one, mm -hmm. that uh, not only did they have, like, 
written language, but right. that Moses and the Exodus and the conquest, it's all just gives more validity to these stories. It's so crazy to me that they don't think Moses was literate because he was literally raised in Egypt. He was a prince. <laughs> right. He was a prince. Did you know there's a movie called The Prince of Egypt and it's about <laughs> Moses? It's about Moses. I know. I know. Some of the arguments are really reaching too. Like he didn't write it and there were these, this is a whole thing we're definitely going to get into. There's a lot of reaching arguments that Moses, again, wasn't real. He didn't write it, blah, blah, blah. Um, but this, this at the very least shows that there was writing at that time right. for the Jewish people. And Moses could have written down the law, just like it says in Deuteronomy 39. And he could have written the Pentateuch. And this the argument comes up often. And the more that this is shown to be valid, I th- I'm hoping it really quashes all of that. Um, the reason I say, you know, as it becomes more valid. So this was found in 2019. Oh, wow. Like, so yeah. very recent. Yeah, very recent. And like December 2019. So then right before COVID. COVID. Yeah. So there really wasn't much they could do with this. And as of right now, there's, like I said, only one peer review so far. There'll be another one next year on this. But it does support the dating and the authenticity. And I'm sure there'll be plenty to argue about. So I want to keep tabs on this. Yeah. But it's like just the coolest, newest find. I I love it. And I get so fired up about Moses and it helps with that too. So ha ha. Ha ha. The way they found this though, I did want to say really Mm. quick. There was an excavation that was done here, I want to say back in the 80s. And the this there was like this pile of debris, like junk that the previous archaeologists had kind of kept in a pile. And then these guys came in in 2019 and they would take that like junk pile, get it all wet because it's mostly stone, and then sift right. it. And when they were sifting it, that's when they found this in this discard pile that was previously like thought of as trash. So it's like, that's every single time they think it's going to be useless stuff. And here we go. And here we go. Check this out. So again, just another cool story of how it's found. All these have really cool stories. God's hand and everything. Literally. Literally. Okay. The moment you've all been waiting for. Number one, which I'm sure will not surprise anybody, <laughs> is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's go! <laughs> so the Dead Sea Scrolls, obviously super important, huge, big time stuff. This is going to be an episode all on its own. Oh, yeah. But I have to put it at number one because it's, it's a big deal. Continuing with our crazy stories, which I'm sure that's what you were referencing earlier, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yes, it yes. was. This Bedouin kid, I won't say kid, I think he was a, in his teens. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, had his goats out in the hills and on the cliffs, and they were wandering too far. This was back in January 1947. Goats were starting to climb too high, and he was climbing up after them and found some caves, being a kiddo, teenager, whatever. Just throwing rocks because I'm sure goat herding is super, super interesting, super fun. Yep. Don't get me wrong. 
glad people do it. Glad he was doing it. But as a teenager, I get it. I'm sure there are other things he wanted to be doing. (laughs) So he's throwing rocks and he throws one into a cave and he hears this cracking sound. Turns out he had just unknowingly discovered the most significant archaeological find (laughs) to date. Oh, man. Could you imagine being that kid? No, no, definitely not. And so what's funny about this, too, is like this was later at night when he did that and heard Mm -hmm. the cracking sound. And you might have heard this already, but he like went home with the goats, told his cousins about it who were roughly his age. They went back into this cave and looked and they're like, you know, thinking they'd found treasure. Right. And they get in there and they're like, that was just pottery. <laughs> just pottery. Just pottery. Who cares? <laughs> can, can I just point out yeah. that God uses shepherds in the most important way every single time? Right. This kid shepherd. I laughed at church last Sunday because my, my pastor was talking about David and him being a shepherd boy. And nobody thought any, when Saul came right. and he was like, show me your sons. And Jesse was like, these are my sons. He goes, you don't have anybody else? Right. Because God doesn't want these seven. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this other one out with the sheep, goats, with the sheep. whatever. <laughs> out with the sheep just hanging out. He's like, yeah. That one. Bring him in. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, and so I just laughed because I knew I was going to talk about this yeah. today. And I was like, <laughs> shepherds. <laughs> so important and awesome. I love it. I love it too. And I let, let me show you these cliffs because Oh, those cliffs are no joke. Yeah. Yeah. These not messing around. <laughs> uh I could see the goats getting up there. They're pretty yeah. steep and you know goats are freaks. So yeah. they can like levitate and climb the ceilings or whatever. Yeah. Um but good <laughs> on that kid. <laughs> you know, like goats that. can do whatever. Have you seen those ones that like jump on houses and stuff? Yeah. It's like they're standing, like you said, they're levitating. They're standing on nothing. Literally How nothing. They're like there? on the edge of a cliff with all four feet Just. on like the tiniest rock. It's like, how? How? How are you there? Like goats are, they're something. They're something else. <laughs> but um, I also was reading another article where this guy take, gives people tours through here, of course. And he was he always challenges like the people who come for a tour. He's like, you try and throw a rock up there. You try and get up there and throw a rock and tell me how easy it is. And, you know, I don't think he said anybody who could do it. (laughs) Okay. Wait. So no one else has been able to do what that kid could do. Right. Right. Divine intervention. I tell you what. I agree. I agree. That stone was just guided right in where it was supposed to go. That was amazing. At the right time and in the right place. Exactly. Um, so where this uh, kiddo found it was cave four, right in, I don't remember if it was A or B, but right in here. These are the other caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls have been found, Wow, is what this picture is showing also. So not only is it steep, this steep cliff, but they were kept everywhere. Is it just me or does the cave layout kind of look like a hand? I thought so too. Audio listeners, you guys seriously need to see this. It's like, like fingers, like like cave fingers, yeah, stretching yeah. out on cave finger cliffs. 
in the I desert. don't even know how to describe it, really. I know. It's just like this hand that is propped up in the desert, and each finger has got caves in it. I don't know. I don't know either, but look it up. It's cool. If you can't see it now, look it up. Right. The Qumran Caves is where this was. So Qumran is um, northwest of the Dead Sea. Okay. And... um Let's see here. Where do I want to take this? Huge find. This kid's awesome. I can't believe he climbed up there. The goats, I can, but him. Right. Again, he's probably very well traversed in that, Fair. In that area anyway. <laughs> the There's another quote here by Dr. Bryant Wood, who is an archaeologist and with the Associates for Biblical Research. He says, quote, probably the Dead Sea Scrolls have the greatest biblical impact. They've provided Old Testament manuscripts approximately a thousand years older than our previous oldest manuscript. The Dead Sea Scrolls have demonstrated that the Old Testament was accurately transmitted during this interval. And in addition, they provide a wealth of information on the times leading up to and during the life of Christ, end quote. Amazing. So, a lot of significance here. A lot of repeating themes, I think, yeah. throughout these like top 10. Um, I'm going to quickly, because again, we'll go over this definitely in more detail, right. but a few cool facts that I wanted to bring up about this. So Qumran was an Essene community living mm-hmm. near the Dead Sea outside of the city of Jerusalem. So I don't know if you remember talking about the different like Jewish sects that was the mm-hmm. Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Essenes and the um, Zealots. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but in my mind, the Essenes like kind of remind me of hippies living in their own commune <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I can't really say that's a bad thing these days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would be all about it. I'd be all about it today. Not going right. to lie but yeah just uh like so they were living on the outskirts of the city that was kind of their thing they like the pharisees meticulously observed the law of moses and the sabbath and ritual purity they also professed belief in immortality and divine punishment for sin but unlike the pharisees the essenes denied the resurrection of the body and refused to immerse herself in public life so they Mm -hmm. stepped out of public life kept to themselves some of them were celibate. Some of them weren't. Depended on how devoted, maybe. I don't know. Right. They were they were an interesting sect. Um, in Cave 4 alone, they found 950 documents. And there was 250 biblical texts, mostly dating to the first century. Some of the non-biblical scrolls contained commentaries, rules for obeying the law, war scrolls, song for worship, calendars, and apocryphal writing. Right. So lots and lots, like a plethora of things found in these caves. And again, we'll talk more about this in a deeper episode, but it was huge for biblical archaeology. It was huge for the Christian community. It was huge for... Everything. <laughs> all so, <over. laughs> so much was found there. Yes. Yes. Like, so much. Stuff we had actually lost because wasn't, wasn't the book of Enoch found there or yes. do I have that wrong? I think it was either found there 
I don't know if it was found there for the first time, but there, okay. if not other apocryphal writing, Gnostic, right. Gnostic texts and things like that were found there for the first time. Right. So. Um, Just these things we had thought we had lost. Yeah. Didn't even know existed. Some yeah. of them, you know, so it's just crazy. I can't imagine all the work they had to do. Some of this stuff right. was being sold in like the Wall Street Journal at the time. So it was found in 47. And I want to say there were articles in like 48, 49 in the Wall Street Journal where they're like, wow. you want to buy some of the Dead Sea Scrolls for 50 bucks or something like that it was ridiculous. Right. So luckily, <laughs> most of this was kept preserved, um, translated, all the good stuff. But that, my friends, that is my is top amazing. 10. And I hope you got as geeked as I did because this stuff was pretty fun. I loved it. That is a super solid top 10. And I'm sure you guys in the chat can think of even more things that yes. we should talk about. And we would love to hear about it. So definitely yes. leave us a comment. Tell us what you think. Uh, and tell us your ideas and your thoughts. I'm so Please excited do. to go back and read them and hear what you guys think. Me too. If I get a chance Friday night, I'll jump into the chat and just troll everybody who's watching. Blame me. It's my <laughs> fault. I got to do VBS this week. <laughs> no, Jess is being yeah. super awesome working with kids, which I always am like, kudos to you, especially for VBS. You live with kids, so I, I don't true. blame you. That's true. <laughs> so Anyway, we uh, appreciate you all being here. Yes, Sorry we're not really here with you in the moment. We will be but next we're here week, with though. You in spirit. Here with you in spirit. And we appreciate you all so, so much. Thank you for um, sticking with us and being here and making this so much fun, so awesome to do. And uh, I just appreciate you. So, Jess, what do you have for us next week? We've talked about it so much. <laughs> We've put it off for so long and now it's just time. So we're going to do it. We're going to tackle carbon dating and the fossil record, the big sacraments of science. It's time to debunk them. It's time for them to die. It's time. It's it comes time. up in every episode and now just every, every episode. And Jess is going to I don't know, just be the brave one and start jumping into this. So I, I, I definitely that. think this is going to be a two-parter. So I'll tackle kind of the science perspective, yeah. you know, how it's actually done scientifically and why it's kind of crock. Right. <laughs> not really spoiler alert. science. Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah, because um, if you didn't know how we felt about it already. Yeah. <laughs> now you do. I don't have any biases going into this episode at all. Me no, I, I am like I did with the seed oils episode. Yeah. I'm going to get all of the information available yep. and just like present it to you guys. And then you make your own decision. Yes. I just kind of have a feeling at the conclusion we will arrive to. Right. <laughs> Aha. Which Aha. I'm super excited about. And yeah, I'm going to follow it up the following week with more of the historical side of it because this is such a big topic. Right. And so big. yeah, we're really going to nail this one, I think. Yeah. Get that out of the way so we stop saying like, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. <laughs> and then we can move on to more things. And yeah, yeah, there's just so much for us to talk about. I'm so excited for all of it. Me too. And I'm excited again to see what you guys come up with in the chat too. So yeah, same. And don't forget, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we are starting our new locals content quirks or quacks. So make sure you guys go over to quirksofcreation.locals.com. 
subscribe so you can get that awesome new bonus content. And coming up soon, we have a new episode of Hawkhound Book Club. <gasps> yes. It's going to be me, Elise, and PJ. And we're going to come up with our predictions for Lightbringer by Pierce Brown. It's not out yet. So that means you guys need to go read Red Rising, Golden Sun, <laughs> Morning Star, Iron, Gold, and Dark Age. That's not homework at all. It's amazing. <laughs> if you haven't read them yet, right? Um, you should start now and not stop for the next like three months. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. I think I started Red Rising last year and only recently finished Dark Age. I'm terrible. It, no, it's but a it's lot. It's just a lot. Yeah. It's a lot, but it's, it's lot. so worth it. It is so worth it. They're so good. And so before the new book comes out in July, we're going to set down our predictions. I'm yes. excited. I am so stoked. So get nerdy with us and come yeah. talk about books too. Yay. Anyway, y'all have a great night. Thank you so much for being here. We will see you live next Friday. Until then, God bless. See you next time. See you then.